Good morning, good afternoon, and red alert. Starfleet, we have a problem. I am your faithful commander, Christopher Ingle, joined as always by my trusty, loyal first officer, Brendan the Mystical Mar. And today it's movie night here on the ship. Uh I, I you know what? I, I love to turn over movie night to Brennan. Uh, and I'll let Brennan introduce to us uh, what piece of of, uh, of of cinematic history we're taking a look at today. Brennan, it's all yours. Thank you, Captain, sir. It's a big one today. Um, and ever since we finished the Star Trek movies, we've been figuring out movies that are Star Trek adjacent. Movies that are Star Trek-esque, but not Star Trek. And when it comes to science movies, when it comes to space exploration, I think there are a few movies better than 1995's Apollo 13, directed by the great Ron Howard. And that's the movie we chose them today. And because we're dealing with what is not science fiction, but a, a historical account of true events. Um, and part of the space program, we had to bring in someone who knows a lot about this. Someone who loves the space program. In fact, we've had this person on our show. This gentleman is the reason why I'm a Star Trek fan. And this gentleman and I have been friends for 30 years. It's the one, the only, Scott Ferguson. Hello, Scott. Thank you for joining us again. Glad to be here. This is a, this is an exciting film, and um, before we get into it, I recall about twenty five years ago, Scott, that you had actually made a movie with some of the boys from church, depicting, I believe, the moon landing. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, when I was uh, in Boy Scouts, um, I became interested in movie making and in the cinematography merit badge. And this movie, Apollo 13, was one of my inspirations for writing, directing, and acting in a film about the Apollo 11 moon landing. And um, this this uh, movie that I made was called Apollo 11 and a half. Yes. And so again, I wrote it. I directed it. I also played Buzz Aldrin. Brennan was in the movie as well as a Trekkie. Yep. He was annoyed at uh, his uh, sister having to wanting to change the channel to watch the Apollo 11 stuff because he's busy watching Star Trek reruns. Which is funny, I don't remember that at all, but but I know I did. <laughs> but anyway, that's that it. Yeah, I remember watching that at Boy Scouts. But anyway, that movie earned me the cinematography merit badge. She did. I think Neil Armstrong would be proud of that. Um, in terms of um me becoming an Eagle Scout and earning the cinematography merit badge for making a movie about Apollo 11. 
But I don't think he'd be too thrilled about how the movie itself turned out. It ended up as sort of a comedy. Mm. Yep, and you made the Legos for the uh, spaceships. As I uh, yeah. That was the uh, the launch sequence moment. So well, I, I this... um, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I did use some um, some Legos for some of the visual effects shots. Yep, and uh, and I did... and I stole some music from two thousand one, a space odyssey. Of course, which they were going to do initially, because that's what they're supposed to play during their broadcast. But Fred Hayes threw something else in instead. Spirit in the Sky. Spirit in the Sky. So that brings us, folks, to 1995's Apollo 13. Directed by Ron Howard. Great Ron Howard. Starring both the great Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, the late Bill Paxton, and many, many, many other uh, great names. Including Gary Sinise and Ed Harris. And Kathleen Quinlan, let's not and forget Kathleen her. Quinlan. Oh, yes. We'll get to her. So we'll begin at the beginning. We're going to break this down into sections. I'm going to start with discussing the plot. So the basic plot. Um, actually, do we want to talk about our memories of when we first saw the uh, movie? Yes. Okay. We'll start with you, Scott. What is your memory of seeing this one? I was 11 years old. It was summer of 1995. I remember other movies that were playing in theaters at the time were Pocahontas, Batman mm -hmm. Forever, yep. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. When I went to see Apollo 13, my family and I went to see it at a movie theater in downtown Morgan Hill. Morgan Hill is sort of a small rural town just south of San Jose. Yep. Yep. And the movie theater in question was an old one. The uh, building is still there, but it's no longer a movie theater. Mm -hmm. But um, also, I remember in those days, when one went to see a movie in theaters, before the trailers started, the um, theater would often play contemporary pop hits on the PA system. Very quietly, it would. Very quietly. Well, in this case, because Apollo 13 was set in the year 1970, the theater PA system played songs that were hits in the year 1970. Mm -hmm. And the one song that I remember them playing was ABC by the Jackson 5. Uh, yes. I'd heard of Michael Jackson before. I knew who he was and what some of his solo hits were. But until that day, I had never heard of the Jackson 5. I didn't know that Michael Jackson was in a boy band with his older brothers. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. No, I don't. In my case, I don't remember when I first saw this film. I did not see it in theater. I believe I saw it on home video. But I do recall loving it the first time I saw it. And my appreciation has only grown as I've gotten older. And Captain Ingle, what are your memories of this film? Uh, it was 1996. And it was in fifth period science class. Wow. I remember it very well. We had studied the planets and what have you. And it had just come out. I This tells you how we had it. We had it on Laserdisc. 
mm. in class. They had a laser disc player. So for uh, those kids who don't know what that is, it's a giant CD. It's a giant CD. Yeah. A giant uh, DVD. But, <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, or yeah, giant DVD. That's a good point. Uh, but we watched Apollo 13 in science class and you know, it just amazed me the ingenuity of these individuals to to strive under the worst of circumstances and to make it and to to beat the odds. Mm-hmm. You know, and it it really became to me a movie about the indomitable human spirit, and that oh, we can, we can agree. do it. And agree. I at that point as a kid, I already had dreams of going to space and wanting to go mm-hmm. uh i actually participated in a um uh an international competition called marsville which was in conjunction with uh with nasa where young people from around the nation in canada would come together and build they would create and build ideas for what a future colony on mars would look like oh, uh nice. and yeah i i and, and all of this was happening all at once to me in my memory like just everything space in 1996 was huge um but this movie was always a culminating one for me to see them make it to see them survive and what you know the the mistreatment that the apollo 13 crew had you know when you see that people didn't want to hear about it people didn't care they were watching regular tv like how like that amazes me to this day i still uh um into the 90s would watch um the different cable channels that would cover the space shuttles why because I wanted to know what they were doing up there. I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. And, uh, and this this movie was one of those early things I remember watching going, you know what? I want to be an astronaut. Yeah, it's a good point because um, even today, with the Artemis thing going on, there's an indifference from some of our peers. Not that they don't care. But many of them are saying, why are we spending all this money on going to space? What's the big deal? Yeah. They you should know what? cut all this funding. And I'm like, I don't agree. You know what? These those same controversy, that same controversy occurred during the Apollo. Yes. Sessions. It absolutely did. Um mm-hmm. but to me, yeah, it is about reaching for that. I think it was Dustin Hoffman, the great Oscar winning actor, who said that. A man's reach should exceed his grasp for what to heaven for. The idea, this is all, we need to reach out and do these things. As President Kennedy said, not because they are easy, but because they're hard. Uh, so that brings us to this thing. So Apollo 13 is remembered in history as the one that went wrong. And it did. And what we discover in this film and when we study the history, is that it was a successful failure. As he says at the end of the movie, they didn't make it to the moon, but they did survive. And as you say, Captain Engel, the indomitability of the human spirit. So let's get into the basic building blocks of this film. So let's take a look at the plot. So the plot, um, and to me, plot is sort of the bare bones of the story. It's pretty straightforward. These guys are trying to get to the moon. Something goes wrong. They have to figure out how to get there. But the story is where it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to go through each scene because we would be here all night. 
So let's so the first chunk really is just before the mission. There's a certain blaseness from the public. Um, illness causes the original crew to step down. Uh, Mattingly gets exposed to the measles, has to be let go. Uh, Marilyn Noble is worried about going to another launch because he's had to go to so many. And that's sort of the first, like, third of the film. So as far as the stories, there are several stories going on with the characters, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, just to cut to the chase, what are our thoughts on the pre-launch moments of the film? We'll begin with our guest, Scott Ferguson. By pre-launch, are we talking about the entire movie before the launch, or are we talking before about right before? Everything before the lunch. Okay. Well, um, here's my thought on it. Um, so how shall I put this? I think it's um I think it does a really good job of setting up Jim Lovell as the main protagonist. Mm -hmm. Who dreams of who now bear in mind Jim Lovell had been into space three times before. Mm. Yes. The third time, and the third time was on Apollo 8. He was one of the first men to orbit the moon. That's right. And now he was he was able to go into space a fourth time and wanted to actually set foot on the moon. This was a very big deal for him. And um, and so there's a bit of a maybe slight fictionalization oh, yeah. as to whether. Yeah. As to whether, uh, I mean, he he was uh, lined up to command Apollo fourteen. That part's true. Mm -hmm. Congress people were looking to cut the funding of the Apollo program, but the movie fudges things a bit by subtly hinting that Apollo fourteen might not be in the cards. Uh. So there's this sense of. Jim Lovell might not get to land on the moon after all. And then moments later, he learns that he's been bumped up to Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. And that he is going to get to walk on the moon after all. And in a way, Jim Lovell almost becomes single-mindedly focused on being able to stay on the flight. Right up until two days before the launch, when uh, Ken Mattingly has to be bumped from the crew... In order to, in order for the crew to proceed, mm -hmm. and now Jim Lovell does put up a fight in defense of Ken Manningly, but when it's clear that if he if he has to choose between staying loyal to Manningly and commanding Apollo thirteen so he can set foot on the moon, he chooses the latter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. In a way, it kind of raises the question of what are his priorities here. Mm, good point. Good point. Um, I think that one of the brilliant things about the first third of the film is the the setting of the characters, because for any great adventure, you have to give us the characters. What are their personal stakes? Mm -hmm. But also, what's interesting about the first third is. All the stuff that was going on right before they launched and things went wrong and and, and things 
the puzzle piece is set into place in just such a way that I don't think it's a coincidence, but we'll get to that later in our discussion. But one of the things I find very interesting about the first third is even though as far as the 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 main story doesn't necessarily advance the plot per se, it does advance the story because the stakes of what's going on as well as the idea of what is the dangers of going on a voyage like this um opening scene the apollo yeah. one fire yeah and the apollo one fire there you go um also brilliant use of actual footage of um walter cronkite and cutting it back and forth with the fictional well dramatized versions of reality it's really well done but i also like the fact that we get a little bit of um uh uh marilyn level and her kind of fears and when we talk about her character we have a lot to to praise kathleen finland for but uh, i do like one, that she is also included in the story one note here is that in real life marilyn lovell was having premonitions about apollo 13 being a more dangerous than usual yes, mission she exactly. she was she was terrified she and her husband had gone to see another movie yep. called marooned marooned which, which was released in 1969 and it showed which depicted an apollo crew that had gone to skyland space mm -hmm. station and, and were on the way back to earth when their spacecraft malfunctioned and it was suspenseful as to whether they would be able to return to earth alive oh interesting coincidence mm -hmm. and uh the movie kind of freaked her out yeah oh well i mean i would say that it's like watching a a movie about a submarine disaster right before you're about to go in a submarine <laughs> a little scary mm -hmm. so captain engel what are your thoughts on this first third um it does such a good job of building up our characters and uh, building mm -hmm. up we're we're seeing these people they how do i put this we often think of astronauts as heroes like you mm -hmm. think about it they're the right stuff i mean we're talking you know early pioneers glenn and and armstrong and and aldrin and you know th these are manly men right mm -hmm. it's really nice that we get to see these guys in their element and the uneasiness that comes with that you know, I I really love that um, uh, 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 Tom Hanks's his portrayal of Lovell is is so cautious. It's so like, but of course it makes sense because Jim Lovell at that point was the most experienced astronaut NASA had. Mm -hmm. He had more flight hours than any other person. And 13, you know, was just going to expand on that. So I, I really love that building of him as a very level head. I love Bill Paxton, a little bit of hot shot, kind of fun, the right-hand man. Mm -hmm. Gary Sinise is great. I love Gary's slow, methodical nature to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually, I've seen lots of interviews with Ken Mattingly. Um, uh, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, I think I, I, I used to work for a science museum uh, in, in where I live. Uh, and 
Ken Mattingly, who is still with us today, he is still with mm-hmm. us today, uh, was one of the individuals who visited uh, the center after we opened, and that was a nice treat. And the guy's a very methodical kind of guy. Now, I can only imagine when everything was on the line, what it was like, and that that scene where they're getting in the simulator, and he was like, "Hey, um, it's not perfect. I want to do it again." Mm-hmm. You know, I I really like that. They take the time to build everyone out, even Maryland. Maryland, we build it out. And that's so important that we get to look at these people not as heroes, but as humans, because it's human life that's at risk when mm-hmm. when when what happens happens. Yeah, you know, vibing off vibing off of that. Um that uh right, the uh scene where they're in the simulator and they want to do it again not only establishes how methodical they are, but it also plants a seed in the audience's mind, indicating that the prime crew is uh, hogging the simulator mm-hmm. and not giving the backup crew as many opportunities to train for the mission mm-hmm. should anything go wrong. And then when they find out later that they have to swap out Mattingly for the backup pilot, Swigert, um, that's more of a whiplash because we know that he hadn't had as much of a chance to train mm-hmm. thanks to the prime crew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But as we can see, you know, that that ended up being handled well. And history tells us that actually Swagger did perfectly fine. Yep. Swagger did yep. everything he was supposed and to in do. In fact, and... it's probably better than Manningly didn't go. Yeah. So that he could help them figure out how to solve the problem. Right. Everybody right. was kind of where they needed to be. But the mm-hmm. the the basically setting up these people as human characters and what's at risk, you know, getting to meet uh uh, uh meeting Lovell's family, you know. I, I absolutely love that. Meeting uh, uh, Mattingly's family. Like, plain and simple. Setting them up as human beings. Uh, I think they're a human state. Or did I say Mattingly? Huh? Mattingly was, still, Mattingly was still a bachelor at that point. Sorry, not Mattingly. I, I said hey, Mattingly. Hayes. I was still thinking about get, Gary Hayes. Sinise. Yeah, Hayes. Hayes. Uh, Hayes' family. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, uh I just I like the humanity of it. It's such yeah. an important thing to this film that you have to feel for these people as human beings and the plight that they're in. And they do a good job making us care. There's a family on the line. There's people on the line, lives on the line. We care about these people. And that whole setup before everything, that's the whole purpose of it. Yeah, we're getting the the pre-idea of what it took to get ready and what have you, but What's more important is that we as an audience are getting ready to love these guys. Yep. Um, so we come into the sort of the, the, the second act. The launch and the accident. Um, and very interesting. So really quick, let's detour. Star Trek has a long history of technobabble, which we all like to make fun of. Apollo 13 has lots of technobabble, but it's real technobabble. Which is really cool. Reminds me of movies like The Martian and whatnot. And so we get the launch, which is, I mean, we'll talk about the visual effects later, but just the 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 power of those launch scenes. I mean, even though this movie is 28 years old, it still looks fantastic. But the launch is incredible. We get to meet a lot of great new characters. Uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, 
the logic is so powerful and I regret that I did not get to see this on the big screen. However, there's a possibility that in two years, in 2025, they may re-release this for the 30th anniversary. One hopes. And if they do, I am totally going to be there. Whether it be um, Cinemark XD or INEX, I'm not sure. And so you know, the launch is, is I mean, gorgeous. Apollo, th Apollo 13 has been released in IMAX before, mm -hmm. albeit heavily butchered. It will, yeah. yeah, unfortunately. So hopefully in two years they don't butcher it. So we get hopefully. the launch, which is magnificent. And then, of course, they have the one engine cutoff. Which they think, well, that's going to be our one issue glitch for the mission. Well, it's like, well, little do they know. Um, we'll get the launch, we get space, and we, and we just got to say, the scenes where they're in space during the launch, combination of CGI model work, and as well as some incredible sets built on the Vomit Comet, and for those listening who don't know what the Vomit Comet is, the astronauts the, train for space. The KC-135. Yep, they're going up in an airplane and then it nosedives. So they can experience weightlessness. Well, that's how they filmed this movie, some of the scenes. Some. In, so, in fact, a great deal of the spacecraft interiors were filmed on Earth. On yeah, solid ground. Yeah, the uh, many of the interiors of the command module were actually filmed with the actors standing on teeter totters. Yes, exactly. With with a weight with weights at the other end of the teeter totters that are equal to the actors' weights in order to balance it out and make it easier to yep. make it look like the actors are floating. But mm -hmm. I gotta say that first scene when they start taking off their spacesuits mm -hmm. and it's really floating. I mean, my heavens. There's some things that you had to do using yeah. the bomb. Oh, yes. And I, oh. I really appreciate NASA coming through and saying, yes, let's let's film here and doing that because that was a lot of work. I uh, had to and, do it many times. <laughs> oh yeah. Um the um for the interiors of the lunar module though, mm -hmm. the what the for the shots that were filmed on Earth, that is, there wasn't enough room in the lunar module set for the teeter totters. So the actors just had to stand there and Pretend they were floating around. Yes, yes. Um, so we get that. And then we get, you know, they're doing some stuff. They're filming a broadcast. Well, uh, Bubbles' daughter is freaking out about the Beatles breaking up. Because, it's yeah, pretty Paul, funny. just days before, Paul McCartney yep. had announced he was quitting the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, and she's really upset. So they do the broadcast. We're having a bit of fun playing some silly music instead of the you know the one in space odyssey also struck first zarathustra you know the the strauss music they do a spirit in the sky and several others and they're going along well turns out well guess what their broadcast isn't being shown on tv and nobody told them because as we mentioned at the top of the show it, it had become routine, which is funny because it reminds me a little bit of the movie Jurassic World. Now go with me on this. The idea in Jurassic World is that dinosaurs have become so blasé 
that nobody cared in the park. And they would go and that was it. This is the same thing. We had already landed on the moon in 1969. You have people, including TV networks, like, eh, who cares about more space flight? But the broadcast doesn't get shown. Well, then they do a little maneuver and stir the oxygen tanks, just a routine thing. And there's an explosion and the oxygen tank ruptures. And they lose like a side of the ship comes off. And then they start losing oxygen because two of the tanks start leaking. But everybody's freaking out on the ship, on um, Mr. Control. Mrs. Lovell is hearing this on the radio. Everything is just going haywire. Um, and eventually they get things settled. Um, there's some wild ingenuity, but I gotta say, these scenes, in my opinion, might be some of the best scenes ever filmed in the 90s, maybe. The way that they're edited, the way that the scenes build up that sense of, even if you don't understand the science of what's going on, you pretty clearly understand what's going on here. And the way they film this is so brilliant. Um, because you really feel the panic. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with you, uh, Captain Ingalls. So this middle act of the film, the launch and the accident and some of their problem solving. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this second act of the film? Um, it's really good cinematic tension, but it's in these places that Hollywood did start to play a little bit fast and loose. Okay. Um this this movie obviously is based on Jim Lovell's account. Uh and I think that definitely shows, you know, that this is this is Jim's story. But and I, oh go ahead. Uh, and I'd like to say that uh many people do regard Apollo 13 the movie as the gold standard for historical accuracy in movies based on true stories. That's true. That, be that being said, there were they did fudge things a bit. Yeah, um, there has they, never really been a Hollywood historical film that's ever done things hundred percent. You're you're right. Um, yeah, no, is, but this is pretty close, fairly close. It is pretty close, and I guess if you're not a historical nut or a kid who was obsessed with wanting to become an astronaut who kind of knew the history at that point, it was like you wouldn't have noticed those things, little things, tiny things. Their performances were so good at setting what was happening. I really, really love one of the details that I enjoyed thoroughly was when the explosion happened, um, Houston did not freak out at all. They like, they, you could see them frantically moving, trying to figure out what's going on. But when they would talk to the astronauts, well, this is one of the details that I love. And, and this is how NASA handles things to this day. There is a calm level tone to whoever is on that on that microphone at that point. Yeah. And I really love the communications back and forth. Even exactly. if the things they said weren't always the most accurate, the tone and the intention were perfect. Setting up this is what it's at stake. We're trying to figure it out. Let us figure it out. Nobody panic. We will figure this out. And of course, you have Gene Kranz going, okay, everybody, let's just keep it calm. 
Mm-hmm. Work the problem, as he says, which I like. Yeah, and it really goes to show you too, like how important that relationship between uh, Mission Control and the astronauts is. It's two parts. It's not just mission control. The heroes may come off as the astronauts, but let me tell you, without that grand oh, crew, yes. this mission does not fly. Oh, yes. Does not fly. Um, you know, uh, one of the other little things in history that this film doesn't touch on, but I love, uh, if you are a fan of uh, hidden the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Catherine, I can never remember her last Dr. name. Johnson. Johnson. Jansen, yes, thank you. Catherine Johnson actually was one of the individuals who was pivotal also. Her calculations were very important in getting the Apollo 13 crew back. We see Krantz a a couple of times coming in, uh, uh, Ed Harris coming in and Mm -hmm. saying, we got this far to go. You know, the person who was giving him all of those calculations, it was Johnson. Yes, she was right. Dr. Johnson, the great legend. So I would have very much wished that we something yeah. you know she could have been mentioned in here but again overall the dramatic tension that's built the 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 intent of of the relationship that we're getting between ground crew and and ma- makes this engaging it makes it believable uh it, it honestly to me is the best part of this film that part where they're trying to ascertain and figure out what to do is yes. so well done. The, the procedural nature of the story is fantastic. They ask all the time. I love the attention to detail on procedure. That is something I enjoy really, really well in this in this um, Scott, what are your thoughts on Act Two of this film? Well, um, I think we ought to say something about Jack Swigert. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as as I said before, in Act One, it was set up that he hadn't had as much of a chance to train. Yeah, which is exactly true. Mm-hmm. And so now this sort of uh, creates this somewhat fictionalized subplot. Yeah. yeah. Albeit one with some basis in fact, I guess, of Jack Swigert has to prove himself. He has to prove that uh, he belongs on this mission, that he can do this job. Uh, it's, first off, he proves that he can dock the uh, command module yep. to the limb. Yep, that's brilliantly done. Brilliant. And but then, poor Jack Swigert is the guy who stirs the tanks. Yeah, unfortunately. And and so he begins to feel as though uh, everyone else, particularly Fred Hayes, resents him for yeah. doing that. Yeah. Because because Fred Hayes was really close to Ken Manningly and yes. uh, kind of yes. considered um, Jack Swigert to be something of a thief, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he, and so when Jack, after Jack Swigert stirs the tanks, uh, Fred Hayes begin kind of um, t- begins to take it out on Jack Swigert. He does, yeah. Now, there's a there's a big argument scene between the three astronauts in this middle act. Yeah. But um, that the astro- the real astronauts claimed never actually happened. No, no. But they, but they felt that there was, the filmmakers felt that it was necessary to have a scene where sort of what they were feeling, what they might have been feeling at this point in the mission comes bubbling up to the surface. 
Yeah, uh, Nick Hodges over on History Buffs on YouTube did a breakdown of this film, and he looked at some of the transcripts and the audio recording and said, well, if they had played everything 100% accurate, it would have actually made for a boring movie because nobody ever apparently raised their voice and lost their temper, at least we have a recording of it. Yeah, procedure in... It, these guys are professionals, and NASA procedure is very dull but there's a reason for mm -hmm. all of that mm -hmm. it's it's methodical it's with a purpose it's with a reason all for the express reason of keeping your astronauts safe they yeah. handle things in communication and in procedures and one so of the difficulties it, of drama like like in a movie is you can't really it's what makes sense some tension yeah it makes sense why in the film they have a little bit of tension yeah, especially exactly. about did you stir the tag you know what you do when you stir the text i did a right you know I get it. I get why it's there, but you're absolutely correct, Scott. There, that was not, by all accounts, uh, accurate. But but it definitely works within the context of the film, I think. And and in the end, Jack Swagger does turn out to be just as much of yep. a hero oh, yes. as, his, as the others because oh, yes. he's the he's the one who powers up the command module when when the time comes, and he's the one at the controls of the command module during reentry. Yep. Yep. Um, so one, then, one other, oh yeah, one, ahead, other one, one other thing I want to mention is Ken Manningly. Mm -hmm. There's one scene in the movie where he's watching um, uh, Dick Cavett yes, on TV Dick talking Cavett, about yes. Jack, talking about Jack Swigert. Yeah, and um, and this is just days after learning that he'd been cut from the flight. So Ken Manningly is uh, downing uh, cans of beer. Mm-hmm. Now, in re the real Ken Manningly was a teetotaler. Mm. He, did, he didn't drink alcohol. Interesting. So there are two ways to, I think, to interpret this scene in the movie. One, it it, it can be interpreted as just a blatant fictionalization, mm -hmm. suggesting that Ken Manningly drank alcohol regularly when, in fact, he didn't. The other way of looking at this, I think, is... Assuming Ken Manningly to be a teetotaler, just as he was in real life, makes the scene all the more disturbing. Mm, yes. The fact yeah. that he started drinking a whole bunch yeah, of beer because he just feels cups. so... He's deep in his cups. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so we get this. We have to get Manningly, of course, out of... Because he's locked up in his hotel room. And they bring him in. He starts running the simulator. And it's really cool. He's like, give me all the conditions that they have. And, and I should don't point give out me that... anything that they don't have up there. Right. I should point out that uh, in the audio comp, one of the audio commentaries for this mm -hmm. movie, Jim Lovell, um, are you, I, I think it was Jim Lovell who mentioned this because he did one of the commentary tracks along mm -hmm. with Marilyn Lovell. It was either him or the director, Ron Howard. I don't remember which of them said yeah. it in the audio commentary. Mentioned that Ken Manningly at this point in the movie, was now effectively a composite character because there were several yes. people in the simulators trying That's to work up true. a procedure. One of them was Ken Manningly, but he wasn't the only one. Oh, it nice. Was, and it, what, it was Ken Manningly who went to Mission Control to uh, deliver the procedures to the astronauts mm -hmm. over the radio. Yes, but he was kind of, but he was kind of representing work of the entire team. Yes. Yeah, you have to do that in these movies. Um, 
So then we come to the, the third act and the final act, which is, okay, they figured out the CO2 tank thing. Now it's time for the return. And they got a jury rig the system and they shut down the, the landing modules or they shut down one of the modules uh, completely. They have to reboot it and they do all this stuff and there's a lot of factors against them. Um, and then they make the return to Earth, which I gotta add is a thrilling climax to a film. So emotionally powerful and brilliantly executed the the um the nail biting sort of tension of of the return to earth brilliantly done i believe brilliantly handled and i'm still wiping tears out of my eyes after watching it again mm -hmm. it's absolutely brilliant so really quickly if you want to speed things along what are your thoughts on the third act we'll start with you scott well okay um Dealing with the uh, carbon dioxide issue, is would that be considered second act or third act? It's kind of both, I think. I okay. think that for me, it's when they get the filters to work is kind of the start of the third act, I think. Okay. That, that's um, how I view it. That's how I see it. Well, I I agree that the uh, reentry scene is a really riveting scene. Oh, my word, yes. Yeah. And 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 uh, also the fact that there was a radio blackout, which was yes. standard procedure, but yes. that the radio blackout actually did go on longer than anticipated because they were coming in a little too shallow. Yes, and that, that was part clear. was true. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, I would not want to be on the man receiving end of that. But. There was a little bit more of uh, Hollywoodization because in the movie, the uh, shoots deployed for the astronauts come over the radio saying that they made it. Yeah, and, and that's actually not. It's the other way around in real life. Yeah, because, because I guess they just, I guess at that point in the movie, they wanted to speed things up and just and not draw the suspense out longer than they really needed to. Yeah, um, it's, it still works very well, I think. And um, as far as a conclusion to a movie, this is definitely one of the best conclusions, I think, on film, where everything kind of pays off emotionally. Um, I, I really Chris, love... What are your thoughts? I, I really love this finality, and something I didn't know as a kid... Uh, when they're aboard the Iwo Jima, Jim Lovell shakes the hand of the captain of the Iwo Jima, and yeah, that the is Jim the Lovell. real Jim Lovell. So that was a nice touch. I was, yeah, I was, that like, was oh, great. that's American cool. Hero. Thank you very much, Amazon, for giving me that little tidbit as I'm watching yes, the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, one other tidbit was that uh, Jim Lovell, the real Jim Lovell, was uh, given the option of playing an admiral in that scene, and he declined. Oh, arguing that right. in real in real life he had retired from the navy with the rank of captain yeah, and like, insisted on remaining the captain. Uh, he's like that would be a little too much. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, brilliant conclusion. And so of course, we could not have an emotionally powerful film without great actors. So this brings us to the cast. 
And oh my word, what a catch. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, because there's so many cast members here. We're just going to go with, with a few of the actors. And then we will discuss the, the uh, mission control and other uh, side characters. So of course you get Tom Hanks as Jim Lowell. And Tom Hanks, at this point in his career, was a two-time Oscar winner. Having just won the previous two years, uh, Best Actor at Philadelphia in 1994, Forrest Gump in 1995, and he wasn't nominated for this film. That was a tough year. Six Oscars, but it was a tough year. Uh, it, he was coming off a hot streak here. Um, I think he's the perfect choice to play Jim Lovell. He's got that America's Dad energy, which is perfect. And I think that the way that he commands, he has faith in the people he works with. That's really something that that I think makes him a good leader. Uh, it's good to have a leader like that. And I think Tom Hanks plays it brilliantly. And has that certain command, which I think is really good. And this is also the year, by the way, he was in Toy Stories. He was having a very good year. Um, but look again, Chris, what are your thoughts on Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell? I I love Tom Hanks so much. And this is right when he's right at the stride. Uh, his young stride, of course, you know, he's gone on to do other things as he's older now. Um, but is it me or does Tom Hanks just specialize in playing real people really well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he does. Like, and it amazes me when this guy comes through. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, Marilyn Lovell commented that that Tom Hanks was eerily almost exactly like her husband in mannerism and cadence and everything like he figured it out interesting yeah i love that like that is so cool uh and his performance was just endearing again he's the level head he's the one that's been up there the most but i feel for him the most as well like yeah. he just wants to land on the moon that 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 uh sequence that he, that they have where he's dreaming of landing on the moon mm, and walking so and I, I, it just, it almost brings me to tears because, like, I feel for this guy. Yeah, Tom Hanks so just beautiful. He it's gives so beautiful. us, uh, uh, that feeling, that, that compassion that, you it, know, we do for Lovell. We Tom feel Hanks bad. It's so brilliant at being able to do so much by doing so little. Mm -hmm. He's very much in the tradition of the old time, like, golden age of Hollywood actors. He's got that, that you almost don't think he's acting. Because he makes it just seem so real. Right. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts on Tom Hanks? Well, um, I I also really like the scene, the imaginary sequence where he sets foot on the moon. Mm -hmm. Because it's a really critical scene for the character of Jim Lovell, who, as I as I said earlier has pretty much almost been single-mindedly wanting to set foot on the moon. Yeah. And uh, he's already made, he's already learned that they can't set foot on the moon, but they're so close. All they have to do is uh, undock, go down, set foot on the moon, but they might never be able to make it back to Earth then. 
It's the throw mankind scene if you get the reference. And in the um, and and as and as he's uh, he sorry, as he's on the moon, he looks up and he sees Earth. Oh yeah, so beautiful. And realizes what his real priorities ought to be. Oh, good point. Good point. Because, Excellent point. Because earlier, right when he right before he gives the order to shut down the fuel cells because mm -hmm. that means he, he tells the others we've just lost the moon we just lost the moon that's the most important thing to him in that moment they're not going to get to land on the moon and so they shut down the fuel cells and waiting to see if it's going to work jack swiger says if this doesn't work we're gonna we're not gonna have enough power left to get back home mm. so and, and but, it's, but it's not until the um the dream sequence when it finally sinks in for Jim Lovell and he realizes he does want to go back to Earth. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, at that moment, Fred Hayes and Jack Swigert are going crazy taking pictures of the lunar surface. Yeah. That's the that's the, the character arc of Lovell peaks in that scene. And and now Lovell's crowding them back in and saying, right, I want to gentlemen, what are your intentions? I want to go home. Yeah, That's Excellent. the payoff of his character arc. Excellent. All right. So then, of course, we come to the, the late the late Bill Paxton as Fred Hayes. Uh, the loss of Bill Paxton is still deeply felt. He's very young. He'd been in a lot of great movies like Titanic, Aliens, and many other movies besides. And he is great. It's a Hayes is the good ball. Hayes is the is the fun one. He's also the I think he's also the one that is definitely the comic Yes. If there is such a thing in this movie, he's very funny. But he's also very I mean his story is very I think heartfelt. The idea that the irony that he gets sick. And Manningly doesn't. And the funny thing is that Hayes is the one that's a little bit more inclined to get lose a temper of, of the three. And the, or you could argue that Jack Swagger does too, but I think um, but Paxton, Fred Hayes is the dad, really. He's a, He's got that dad energy going on. And I think um, Bill is a great choice to play this character. And I do love Fred Hayes a lot. And I think that Bill Paxton is maybe an underappreciated actor sometimes. Uh, so that's what I think of Fred Hayes. Uh, Chris, what do you think about Fred Hayes? Um, again, for you know, you see what's at stake for him. His wife is pregnant, and I love that that vulnerable moment where you know yeah. where she's sitting there, and he's like, "We weren't even supposed to get pregnant." Yeah, yeah. I, I love know, that moment. Yeah, he's he's taking that, and he, you know, I feel for him. He gets sick. He gets a UTI during the process, mm, and gets and a terrible fever. And yeah, just, uh... I mean, this guy's feeling horrible right now. And the amount of aggression and anger and yet reserve at the same time, because 
you know, they're trapped up there. They can't do it. And and the moment when they're arguing, uh, the, I think the first time over, you know, who stirred the tanks? We don't, you know, you know, what have you. Uh, he does such a good job in this. I love it. He's yeah. the great middleman. He's he's got a little bit of an out a little bit of an attitude, a little bit there, but he's waited for this for a long time. So it makes yeah. sense. I totally get it. Yeah. And, and he's got no a lot person, of things. I mean, Winston Terror, you know, he was one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Scott, what are your thoughts on Bill Paxton? Well, first a thought on the character Fred Hayes. The sad mm-hmm. thing is Fred Hayes and his wife in the movie. Yeah. Well, real life wife that is got divorced several years after Apollo mm-hmm. 13. That's unfortunate. A lot a lot of astronaut marriages uh, it, in, yeah. in those days didn't survive. Absolutely. Of course, one of the few exceptions were Jim and Marilyn Lovell, who are still married correct. to this day. That's correct. Yes. It's hard yeah. on the people who do these things. But anyway, uh, Bill the idea Paxton, that we want to put them up on pedestals is these great people. They have the problems you and I have. So, but anyway, Bill Paxton, I agree, was a reliable actor and oh, yes. uh, and sort of uh, going for more of a good old boy kind of mm-hmm. persona mm-hmm. as Fred Hayes, because Fred Hayes is in fact from Mississippi. Uh, very much down home American. Mm-hmm. So there was sort of that vibe going, I think. Yep. Yep. Uh, then, of course, we have to talk about the great Kevin Bacon as Jack Swaggart. I mean, who doesn't love Kevin Bacon? I mean, not loving Kevin Bacon would be considered an American. But if you look at the range of Kevin Bacon as an actor, you know, this is the guy from Animal House. This is the guy from Footloose. This is the guy Jordan from Utah. Yeah, this is the guy from Frost Nixon. You know, this is the guy from the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. I mean, the, the man has range, and I love him in this role because I think he is believable as the hotshot womanizing astronaut. Of course, I love all the scenes with him and his his lady loves. It's pretty funny. Of course, he wasn't the only uh, womanizing astronaut. No, the astronauts astronauts are are known for getting around. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, uh, Jack Swigert was a bachelor, so he had a little more, uh, shall we say, freedom. Yeah, and it certainly didn't stop some of the other astronauts. But I think Kevin Bacon is fantastic in this film, and I love that. That even though it's not 100% accurate, but there is that doubt about his abilities. But he proves himself more than capable. And I think Kevin Bacon nails it with the, 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 the character was a little bit more on the edge, so to speak. Um, Emotionally. Uh, so we'll start with you, Scott. What are your thoughts on Kevin Bacon as Jack Swigert? I would describe him as, yes, definitely a swinging bachelor, but <laughs> what but once the once he gets assigned to the crew, after the initial excitement of getting assigned to the crew wears off, 
he starts to take the job very seriously and he starts to act a little more grim compared mm-hmm. to the other crew members. That's a good point. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on the great Kevin Bacon as Jack Swigert? I, I love bacon. Um, <laughs> especially crispy. No. Um, a good BLT. Mm. <laughs> no, Kevin Bacon is really great here because he plays this a little understated. He's a hot shot, at least. That's what I kind of get kind of coming through, oozed a little bit. You know, finally, I get to be the pilot. I get to be, but yet he's not overly cocky about it. I can do my job. I can do what I have to do. Um, you know, they were concerned, uh, or the, the the movie depicts it as they were concerned whether he was going to be able to dock the command module and the lab, you know, to dock everything together. But once again, you know, movie, movie, you know, drama. Uh, the real astronauts said there was never really a worry about that. They knew he could do it. And if he couldn't do it, the other two were perfectly capable of taking over and doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So a little more, you know, dramatic built built into it, but he did. Yeah, a little out. dramatic license. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoy him. And, you know, this is a guy who feels like a rookie. You know, I, I did my job. I did what I was supposed to do. I stirred the, I stirred the tanks. I just, I just stirred, you know, you know, like that's what he's stuck on. He's stuck on the single mistake that put them in there, even though he had nothing to do with it. You know, and so he plays that out really well. I I enjoy that thoroughly. Um, yes, yes. But I I will say of the three, he felt the least developed. Okay, that's fair. That's mm-hmm. fair. I I don't know if I, I would agree, actually, but I. I would actually consider Fred, in, this is my opinion, I would consider Fred Hayes to actually be the least developed. Yeah, it's because fair, although, he, although, although he has, although there are scenes of his family, um, I just felt like um, Fred Hayes had less of a character arc than uh, Jack Swigert had. Because Swigert had to prove himself, whereas Hayes is, is more of a one-note character, I think. Who does eventually come around to having respect for Jack Swigert, but I just felt like Hayes' character arc it, was a little less evident. Yeah, I mean, you could argue either that Swigert or Hayes is a little underdeveloped, at least underdeveloped compared to, say, Jim Lovell. Right. Well, really, this is Jim Lovell's movie, really, if you think about it. And, they, and with the Jim Lovell in the scenes on the spacecraft dominating the spacecraft scenes, Plus, also cutting back and forth between Ken Manningly, yeah. Marilyn Lovell, and the mission control people, it does feel like uh, Hayes and Swiger do get a little lost in the shuffle, comparatively speaking. Okay. Not okay. too much, but some. I mean, it's a big cast, and they're juggling quite a what a crew here. So then, you just mentioned Manningly. That brings us, of course, to the great Gary Sinise as Ken Manningly, who I think. Is is fantastic. I mean, you know, he was Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan the year before this, um, and then and he was great. And then, a, and, and then a few years after this, he was in another astronaut movie, Mission to Mars. That's right. Yes. So we get uh, the great Garrison East. Mattingly is a great character. I think you see the turmoil, and then you see the. The moment he learns something wrong, he goes to work. 
this is a reliable guy. And I think that Gary Sinise is playing the all-American reliable guy. I think he nails it. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on Gary Sinise? I I love Gary Sinise. Um, This is a guy who knows how to play tortured. And you can tell Mattingly is tortured. You know, getting pulled. And he's mad about it. You know, I, you know, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get sick. And he never did get sick. He did not <laughs> get the measles. Uh, and I kind of like too, when he walked into mission control, they kind of code messaged each other. Nope. I am perfectly fine. Yeah. He gives that look to the medical guys. Like, yeah. uh, but he's, he's a great addition to the team. I love having him aboard. Uh, you know, and and he's the guy in the end that saves the day. I mean, yeah. everybody had a part in it, but without this guy, we don't get power back on. And that yeah. was true. They had to develop these procedures. He wasn't the only guy, of course, but they needed those procedures. If they did not get it right, it was going to cause and, problems and to for think everything. That all the average it takes to run a coffee maker is what got these guys back home. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing too. That's when you think amazing. Techno- technologically wise, we have you know we have here our our cell phones. These cell phones have thousands of times the computational power, let alone memory storage, that the Apollo astronauts had, and that's yeah. crazy when yeah. you think of it. That's like, nuts. Um, like, think about it. We could have fixed the, the, <laughs> the Artemis team is going to have a lot better technology than the. Yes, team did. Yeah. but that's just amazing if you think about it. That a cell phone, in terms of power and storage, could have could have helped save, you know, Apollo thirteen. That's just yep. nuts. But yep. yes, uh, in terms of Madden, like I I really love Gary Sinise in this. He is very consistent, uh, you know, and coming off of Forrest Gump, uh, you know, he's he's His Oscar nomination for Forrest Gump, right? He, he's got the chemistry yes. in here. Uh, there are a lot of performances in here. I have to admit, I was surprised did not get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, and any point. of the four, uh, especially Tom Hanks, was surprised that that didn't happen. Yep. But as I said earlier, that was a tough year. Yep. It was a very tough year very for Best tough. Actor and Best Supporting Actor. So. Uh, Scott, your thoughts on Gary Sinise as Ken Manningly? One scene that I really like in the movie of Ken Manningly is the scene where um he learns about the disaster he was just moments away from learning mm-hmm. about the disaster mm-hmm. in that scene where he was guzzling the beer yeah the dick yeah but when he finally does learn about it you see the look on his face just sort of a calm look and realizing that he's got to put aside his animosity his, per, his feelings of animosity towards Jack Swigert and maybe towards Jim Lovell because mm-hmm. it was Lovell's decision. It was Lovell's decision. He's, he realized he's... What's more important now is bringing these guys back home alive and, and not hating them anymore. Yeah. Yep. Um, and incidental... Uh, one other thing I want to mention is that sure. in, in that scene... The guy who walks into the into the hotel room and wakes up Ken Manningly is John Young, the backup commander for Apollo 13. Uh, yep, 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 yep. And um and John Young would go on to command Apollo 16 with yes. Ken Manningly as the command module pilot on that mission. So that's correct. Nope, no, that's not really mentioned, but 
just at the end. Nope, but, but, yeah. no, but knowing the personal history, you sort of get the feeling that uh, this guy is look, sort of looking after Ken Manningly, sort of almost becoming a quasi-father figure to him because the two of them end up becoming crewmates yeah. on a later successful moon landing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, now, we just mentioned... Oscar nomination. So we come to our first Oscar nominee of the lineup. And that is, of course, um, Ed Harris playing Mission Control uh, Commander uh, Gene Kranz. Um, and he was nominated for uh, an Academy Award for this film. And, uh, and 12 years this. earlier, he had played uh, John Glenn in the right stuff. Yes, that's right, he did. Um, I absolutely love Ed Harris. I think Ed Harris is a great actor. He does so much in a very, like, under-the-surface way. And I love his level head as Gene Kranz. In kind of a voice of reason here. And I think it's a well-deserved Oscar nomination. Uh, for him, and this is really awesome that he was nominated. So, Scott, we'll start with you. Ed Harris and Gene Kranz, what are your thoughts? I guess my only gripe, my only gripes about him are the, as uh, Gene Kranz, are the swearing and the smoking. Because oh, yeah. this guy, this yeah. guy inhales uh, cigarette after cigarette in this movie. It's a little sickening. But, but it, it is a first-rate performance. And um, and not only that, but he delivers this one line with great conviction, failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. A, a line that, was ne that Kranz never actually said in real life. It was, um, but uh, because of Ed Harris's performance, delivering that line in this movie, the line itself has become very iconic to the point where the real Gene Kranz used that line as the title of his autobiography. Yep, there's an option. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts on the great Ed Harris? I loved him. Uh, and actually, the chain smoking made sense. Look how much stress was going on at that yeah, point. Yeah, it's true. Kind of makes sense why they were doing what they were doing. I buy it. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. Um, no, he was fabulous. Uh, I, I really liked him again. There was a softer nature to him, despite, you know, the, the, the clear leadership that he needed to be to get things to happen. This was a leader who, who understood. Yeah. He understood. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we can't panic. We can't stress. I need to bring the best out of my people. And he knew when to say, listen, I don't care how many times get those things over here now. We're doing this. We don't have time. We don't, have, you know, he knew what to say. You know what to do. He never panicked. Finest hour. This, yeah, this, you know, uh, the mission was the greatest failed success ever. And it's highly in part to his leadership, the real man. And of course, Ed does such a good job performing it. Uh, and I know we have a friend of ours who is uh, a big Ed Harris fan, and he talks about this role all the time. Oh, yeah. You say Ed Harris three times, and he talks up. Yes. <laughs> Next guest for our show. Yeah. Uh, it's really quick. Sorry for the interruption earlier, but I was just trying to mention as 
as an example of uh, showing the human side of uh, Gene Kranz, mm-hmm. those vests that he uh, wears yes, during that the uh, mission. Yes. Yep. All right. And then, of course, we have to end our discussion on the actors. We'll talk about one more actor, and then we'll talk about the cast in general. And then, of course, the other Oscar nominee for this film. Kathleen Quinlan is Marilyn Lovell. Um, I don't have a lot to say other than she's excellent. And I love that she was a prominent character in this story. Because the stress that these things have to have on their wives or the wives or husbands or significant others of the astronauts uh, sometimes gets overshadowed and I'm glad that she played a major role in the story and I really like her character I really like the pathos she brings and I think Catherine Quinlan a richly deserved Oscar nomination Uh, Scott your thoughts on Catherine Quinlan um Really riveting performance. That's all I can say. Um, one thing I liked was that, uh, well, there there is the, there is this one scene where Marilyn Lovell's taking a shower and she loses right. her wedding ring. Yes, yes. Down the drain. That actually happened. That's that good. actually happened in real life. Although what the movie fails to admit, I mean, what the, I mean, what the movie fails to mention is that she was able to retrieve the ring afterwards. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, just the idea of she's inwardly freaking out over all this. She's trying to put on a brave, a brave outward appearance and all this, but uh, she's kind of freaking out inwardly about the uh, disaster. And but she manages to pull it together. Yep. Yep. Uh, well said. Uh, and then so excellent there. Uh, Chris, your thoughts on Captain Glennon? She's perfectly perfectly serviceable as Marilyn Lovell. I like her. Her worries, her concerns make sense. Uh, the emotion is there, and I like it. She does a fabulous job. Uh, and the chemistry between her and Tom Hanks is really good. I yes. buy them as husband and wife. You got it. Um, yes. So you get uh, we have a large cast here, so we're not really going to discuss each of them. But I will say, for the sake of Star Trek, there are six actors in this movie that have appeared in Star Trek properties, so I will name them for you. We have Ned Bond, Max Gradenchik, David Andrews, Googie Crest, Clint Howard, and Andy Midler. Um, a special yeah. shout out on Clint Howard. Yes, I he wanted was... to highlight him. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Who did he play, Scott, in the original series? Clint Howard played Baylock. Yeah. Or rather, he played the on-camera Baylock. His voice yes. was dubbed to sound yes. like an adult. Really weirdly. <laughs> but he's also the younger brother of the director, Ron yes. Howard. Yep, and he's in most of his brother's movies. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and he was, and he wasn't the only member of the Howard family to appear that's true. in Apollo that's true. Bryce Dallas Howard makes yeah. a quick young appearance in, uh, I think, the families as they're waving goodbye yep, to waving him. Goodbye. Yeah, and then of course Ron Howard and Clint Howard's parents, Rance Howard and uh, whatever his mom's name is. Um, Rance Howard plays like the the family priest. Mm-hmm. 
and Mom Howard plays uh, Mom Lovell. Mm -hmm. Really good there. And then, of course, we also have to mention among the crew, uh, among the mission control people, of course, as we said, Fred Howard, but you also have Max Bradenshake. He plays Rom on Deep Space Nine. So just wanted to give a shout out to Dan. Uh, and then, of course, we had a really, really good cast of other minor characters. And there's a lot that we could talk about, but I think that suffice to say, this is an extremely well cast film. One, one other actor I want to mention is Mark McClure. Mark McClure plays yes. uh, the yes. alternate uh, flight director, yes. Glenn Money. McClure is probably best known for playing Jimmy Olsen in yes. uh, the 1978 Superman movie. Yes, he was. And he was also in uh, he was also in a uh, film short called The Phone Call, uh, produced by BYU. Nice. Okay, so that's our cast. It's an excellent cast. Um, brilliant, you know, film as far as the casting. But let's quickly get into some of the technical elements of this film. We'll start, of course, with the musical score by the late um, James Horner. James Horner, one of the great composers, I think, of all time. But maybe it's so nice doesn't get enough credit. And certainly was important to our generation, the three of us. Having done works like, of course, The Land Before Time and many other things that came out during that time as well. Star Trek so II, music, The Con. Yes, yeah, Star Trek Two. there we go. And Star Trek Three: The Surface and Star Trek Three. His music here is great. It's got that sense of, of rah, 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 America. Mm -hmm. It's also got that sense of of the, the ingenuity, the, the human spirit, the indomitability. I would I would label it as quiet patriotism. There you go. Well said. Yes. Um, music really conveys the emotions here and really conveys that sense of exploration. Uh, of course, the cinematography is fantastic by Dean Gundy. The art direction is great. And of course, we have to talk about the visual effects. The movie does make some use of CGI. And but a lot of model work and other things that the visual effects hold up extremely well, even today. Um, and also the, the using the vomit conduct or well, some of the filming, not all of it. Um, but the technical wizardry on display here is extraordinary. Um, because really, that's a big part of this movie, because it's about space exploration. And at the uh, time, that was that was really the only way that they could simulate microgravity. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, uh, only, Whereas uh, now, if I may digress a little, ahead. sure. Uh, there's a movie called Vizov, or The Challenge in English, that was actually filmed aboard the International Space Station. Ooh. And where the microgravity was real. Nice. That's the that's the only way I can think of 
that this that Apollo 13 could possibly have been surpassed in terms of the visual effects work. So also, the have... sound, the sound in the movie is fantastic. And uh, and we'll get to the the awards in a minute, but just as we sort of wind our podcast down, Chris, what are your thoughts on the just the 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 presentation of the film? It's it's beautiful. Uh look, I love science fiction, but my heart, the thing that I love watching just passionately all the time is biopics. And this is presented in a very nice digestible package. Mm-hmm. It's not overly slanted or skewed one way or another, which it could have been, and it wasn't. Uh, you know, again, this is much more Lovell's perspective, being that it is based on a story. Uh, uh, co-written by level. Okay, I'll buy that. I'll go with it. Um, but the presentation is just absolutely beautiful. The editing is fabulous. I love the score. In fact, poor James Horner was nominated for two films for best twice. score. Yes, did not win. Poor guy lost to the postman of all films. <laughs> but you know, he was nominated also for Braveheart, which is also a really good score. Yes, also a really good score. Um, but you feel that sense of triumph. I think especially in that final moment when when you know, you know, Houston, this is Apollo 13, we have splashdown, you know, like and the triumph and the score, and everyone's so happy and it's great, like it's fabulous. And then in space, it's not silent by any means, it's but eerie. The, but it's, it's eerie. eerie. The tension yeah. is built well. The entire presentation is just fabulous. I, other than and the use of choir, the use of choir too. Yeah. Really other than, other than for me, the historical inaccuracies, which I get for dramatic purpose, yeah. I understand. This is a perfect film to me. This, I watch it, I enjoy it, I learn a little something, I experience a little something. Like you, you, you tick all the boxes with this film, and the presentation is is what makes this worth it. Scott, really quick thoughts on the presentation. Um, well, I generally agree with what Chris has said. Um, I feel like the uh, technical elements don't really uh, draw too much attention to themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. the music, yes, and the visual effects, yes. The cinematography is, I would describe, as understated. I mean, it's yeah, definitely it's, it's, I mean, it's really stylized. Yeah. It, it's really spectacular if you look for it, but it doesn't really draw too much attention to itself. And that's, and I guess they just weren't trying to do that. They want, I think they wanted to keep the focus on the story and the characters a bit more. And that's what leaves a strong impression in my mind. Um, what is this movie about? Yep. And, um, and uh, so I, I've seen it many times. I've, the last time I saw it was several months ago. Yeah. But I've seen it so many times that I know a great deal of this movie inside and out. Yep. So uh, we bring it to the end. This film uh, cost about $50 million to make. It made $355 million at the box office. Good son. Got great reviews. was nominated for nine Academy Awards. Uh, winning two for best editing and best sound, mm-hmm. which they deserved. Um, this film has become a classic of the 90s. One of the great 
not science fiction, but science films of all time. And then as we come toward the end, I just want to throw out how Star Trek is it. And I'll just quickly say, Star Trek has dealt many times with a technical problem that they have to figure out to solve. One could argue that the entirety of Star Trek Voyager in many ways parallels of all of 13. They're lost, things go wrong, they have to figure out a way to get home. And thanks to the brave crew, as well as people back on Earth, they make it back safely. And I think that this is why we chose this film to be in our Star Trek podcast. And because if anything is the spirit of Star Trek, the spirit of we can overcome obstacles. I think I speak to the three of us when I say this is a movie about the indomitability of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. That's what Star Trek is about. That's why we chose this film. And watching this film today, it struck me very hard. These are some of the reasons why I have faith in humanity. Something goes wrong, everybody pulls together. Even though they didn't land on the moon and it was a failure in that sense. As Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. This movie shows that what people were willing to do to bring these astronauts home. And even down to the Pope leading congregation in prayers. Really an extraordinary film on so many levels. And as we quickly wrap up, let's just hear your final thoughts on it. Our guest, Scott Ferguson. Like I said, I've seen this movie so many times and I mm-hmm. expect to see it so many more times. I mean, this is just a movie that uh, that I really can't get enough of in some ways. Mm-hmm. And um, personally, I think that um, that's the movie I would have wanted to vote for for Best Picture at the Oscars, which it was nominated for. Yes, it lost to Braveheart. Uh, and one thing I will say really quick, the fact that Ron Howard didn't get a Best Director nomination still is a shock to me to this day. Mm. Uh, yes, and 95 was a good year for film. But yes, I think this film has probably endured the best of the films that come out in 95 with the exception of maybe Toy Story. <laughs> you know, those are probably the two 1995 films that have endured the longest. All right, we'll turn it yeah. over to our in- intrepid captain. Captain Ingle, please give us your final thoughts and then you can take take over the show. Um, this is an educational masterpiece. I'm glad I saw this in the sixth grade. And, you know, it's it's good for teams working together, building through a problem, and it shows a real life example of how we can do that. Um, I I agree with you, Scott. This is a film I would probably watch again a couple more times at least. Uh I enjoy it. It feels right. It feels accurate again. Despite what I know, it feels right. It feels like this is what the I'm pulled in with it. I'm a part of this journey with them. I'm right beside them in that capsule. I feel for them every time I see it. This 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 is a really great biopic 
uh, historical film uh, and, and definitely uh, should be on everyone's short list uh, when you talk about Tom Hanks' performances. Amen. All right. Take us home, Captain. All right. Well, uh, of course, I want to thank our our guest, uh, Scott Ferguson, and his insight on Apollo 13. As always, Scott, we thank you. Uh, you got anything to plug? Um, besides uh, an electrical appliance? <laughs> um, How many amps? Is it under 20 amps? Okay. Um... <laughs> I'm not sure that I have anything to plug on the air at this time. Okay. Um, but yeah. Yes. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Live long and prosper. Yes. Yep. Well, next week, uh, next week we go back to the randomizer and the randomizer. Uh, actually, I think we talked about this before. Gave us mm -hmm. a Picard. It yeah. gave us a Picard. Uh, and it's going to be the, the premiere episode of season three. The an next generation. An yeah. Season. So we're going to watch the premiere episode of this most recent season of Star Trek Picard next yep. week, The Next Generation. All right. Uh, and actually, uh, I do have some good news. Uh, one of the episodes that we are going to review this, this month, I confirmed it with our good friend, Chris Doman. We are going to review the Strange New Worlds musical episode, yeah. Subspace Rhapsody. Yes. That will be a longer episode, but we do mm -hmm. have our musical expert who's going to join us uh, so we can review that and its music uh, properly. Yep. Brennan, where can the people find you? You can find me on X at Brennan Mystical. You can find me on threads and Instagram at Brennan Blue. You can find me on Blue Sky at Brennan Martin. You can find me on YouTube uh, under the umbrella page turners. They were not on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find me on Twitch and Twitter at C Ingle 1984. But as always, we end every episode. Kapla! Live long and prosper. Peace and long life.